Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Listen, I am, I am excited this morning, and I am going to challenge you probably in a way that you've never been challenged in church before. How many of you would say you grew up in church? You, you kind of grew up in church? Oh, okay. Well, then maybe I'm not going to challenge but a lot of you because a lot of you didn't grow up in church. So maybe we're 50-50. Those of you that did grow up in church this morning, I'm going to ask you to stay with me the whole message. Okay? Just hang on with me the whole entire message. You got to make it through to the end. And because uh, I'm going to say you got to make it through to the end. And because uh, I'm going to say some things and challenge some things that you're going to go, hmm, really? I haven't heard that. But a lot of you, I think, probably have. We're in the middle of a series called Irresistible. This year, God's, God really affirmed in our hearts that we're to go beyond belief, beyond uh, our expectation. And, and that means a number of things to us. Uh, I believe that's beyond belief in our property and in, in becoming owners of this property very soon. I really believe that. I believe that beyond belief goes into my convictions, my, my heart as a pastor. So there's a lot of things that go into that. But this, this series that we're in, I've been really excited about this series for a while now, and, and we're in week number three. So if you have missed week number one or week number two, go back on our Facebook. You can watch the service on our Facebook, or you can go to our podcast and, and download it off our podcast. But we're in week number three, and week number one, we talked about the fact, and I'm just going to do a little short recap. It won't take long. But week number one, we talked about the fact that King Solomon, uh, and, well, King Saul, and then King David, and then ultimate King, King Solomon wanted to build a temple. Okay? They wanted a temple. In fact, King Saul shouldn't even have been King Saul because God's plan was never for Israel to have a king in the first place. And Israel, they, they show up and they're begging Samuel, we want a king. And Israel, they, they show up and they're begging Samuel, we want a king, we want a king. And so, so God gives them what they want because they wanted to be like all the other cool kids in the nations. And so they wanted to have a king. So God, fine, fine, he gave them a king. And then David decides, you know what? Not only do we need a, a king, but we have this tent, and, and my God is great. He needs a tabernacle. And so David decided to build God a tabernacle. God wouldn't let him. And so Solomon came in and ended up building the tabernacle. But that was never, having a king and having a temple was never God's plan. Okay? It was never God's plan, but he went along with it, and he went along with it, but it was always meant to be temporary. Everybody say temporary. Two, and, and then last week, week number two, uh, Pastor Kevin highlighted a brand new agreement that we've been given in our relationship with Christ, and it was designed all along to replace our old covenant, which serves for nearly half 
of the context of our English Bible. So Jesus came to establish and replace something new. Something new which replaces half of our Bible. And, and then also Pastor Kevin talked about, and, it got, and I expected to get quiet today. Uh, it got quiet last week there at the end. He started asking questions. You could hear a pin drop. And, uh, but he, he started talking about the dangers of mixing and matching a little bit. And he left us kind of on a cliffhanger. He left us with some questions last week. He, one of the questions he asked was, why do Christians fight so hard to get the Ten Commandments back into the courthouse and into the schools? Why not portions of like the Sermon on the Mount? Something like that that's applicable to... I didn't get very many amens. That's okay. That's applicable to... I didn't get very many amens. That's okay. That's okay. But as we go through this series, I want you to hang tight with me today. As we go through this series, I want you to remember that it is our roadmap to reclaiming the new that Jesus... Everybody say Jesus... Now, I hope you understand that he is the focal point and the center of all we do. We sing that song, Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at, okay, he is. So Jesus came to unleash. So sometimes the church needs to open our eyes and we need to reclaim, go back to what Jesus intended from the beginning to unleash for the world. How many of you remember your first Bible? Maybe, maybe not, you know, the first Bible, like the little bitty one you were given as a, as a toddler or whatever. But you remember your first Bible that you actually used and kind of read? Man, I remember mine. Mine was given to me in Roaring Spring, Texas um, by Ricky and Naomi Lawrence. And, and Pastor Ricky's since gone on to be with the Lord way and, and Pastor Ricky's since gone on to be with the Lord way, way too soon. Um, and they wrote in the, in the cover of this book. Uh, a really cool note to me. And that, that Bible really became my preaching Bible. I, can't, I almost brought it today, but it literally is falling apart. The cover won't stay on it. it the front to back, it's just highlighted and marked up. I got sermon titles, every few chapters and ideas and, and all that. And that was kind of my go-to. And, and since then, I've had tons of Bibles. In my office right now, I was counting. I've got 11 Bibles in my office right now. I've got two or three at home. And, uh, you know, if you don't know what to get a pastor, sometimes people just give him a Bible. And, uh, and so uh, I've got several Bibles. But as a child, I was always taught this, that the Bible is God's word and that it is all true and that we're never to put anything on top of it, never to elevate anything above it. And if you grew up in church, you were probably taught something a lot like that, something similar to that. You believed what you were told about the Bible to be true, even though and before you had even read it. Think about that. You believed that the Bible was true even before you read it. And if you're like most Christians, statistically, you still haven't read the whole Bible. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I'm, not, I'm amening myself. I need, Pastor Eddie, that's what we need. I need a button. Where I can hit a button and it just goes, hey, man, like the crowd, yes, preach that. So, boom, preach that. And, you know, man, I'll just be stomping that thing out. Chances are that some of the people that told you that everything was true maybe hadn't even read the Bible themselves. So, 
Anyway, thank you. Thank you, sister. Can somebody get her a microphone, please? And an echo. I need reverb, echo. Make it sound like 30, 40 people. Anyway, if you grew up attending a conservative Bible church like I did, the entire Bible was considered authoritative, not just the New Testament, but all 66 books. In fact, where I came from, the, the denomination that I came out, one of our fundamental truths was that. Consequently, from day one, unintentionally, many of us were encouraged to mix and match and blend Old Testament concepts and values with New Testament concepts and values. It's unlikely that anyone explained to you that the Bible was organized, now listen, was organized around several covenants or contracts between God and a variety of people and people groups. The odds are that nobody explained to you why the Old Testament is called old and why the New Testament knew. The entire book to me growing up seemed old, right? Does it not to you? You were told, or maybe you figured it out on your own, that the New Testament was told, or maybe you figured it out on your own, that the New Testament was about Jesus. Hallelujah. At least most part of it, and thus your relationship with the Bible kind of began. Now, if you were ever encouraged to read the Bible, and I'm sure if you grew up in church or around church much, you have been encouraged to read the Bible. Maybe you adopted the sound of music approach and you started at the very beginning. Generally speaking, a pretty good place to start. However, if you did that and you stuck to it and you started at the beginning, it took you a long time before you got to Jesus. Right? It just took you a while. And then when you got to Jesus, it was like stepping into an entirely different world. Right? Come on, think about it. If you read the Bible from the beginning all the way to Jesus, when you get to Jesus, it is not the same. It's just, the, and in fact, there's something even missing in that in between, namely about 400 plus years of storyline that's missing from the end of our Old Testament to Jesus. Now, perhaps uh, the narrative, yeah, there's 400 years of storyline. The narrative jumps from this. Listen, at the end of that storyline, the narrative, the narrative jumps from this. Listen, at the end of that storyline, the narrative jumps from God setting people on fire while his followers trampled the wicked under the soles of their feet to Christmas. Okay? Transition wasn't real smooth. It was different. Now, perhaps someone gave you a reading plan or a devotional that included, and, and, and I see them all the time. I've used them. I've, I've done this. I've read the Bible through in the year plan. I read the Bible through in the six-month plan. And they always do this. Read, you know, John chapter 1. And then go and read Second Second Samuel. They just and and you're man, it just gets so confusing. And you kind of mix and match, and and you get a little bit of old and a little bit of new, and a little bit of old and a little bit of new. Now that's how most Protestant Christianity operates today. Put the old and the new 
in a blender, mix it up, and serve it as one single dish. Churches do it all the time. I've done it all the time. Most preachers mix and match Old Covenant with New Covenant. And for years, I had done that too. Mix and matching the old with the new. Most Christian books and calendars and greeting cards and, of course, Christian music are even mixed with this blended old and the new. Now listen to this. Decades of mixing and matching have left a version of faith filled with leftovers of the covenant that Jesus came to fulfill and to replace. I'm going to say that one more time. Decades of mixing and matching have left a version of faith filled with leftovers of the covenant that Jesus came to fulfill and to replace. We're still hanging on to some of these leftovers that Jesus came and said, we're done. We're done with that. Old covenant leftovers. That old covenant leftovers sometimes explain why religious leaders feel that it's their responsibility to rail against the evil society like some Old Testament prophets did. It's why some of our song lyrics are filled with invitations for more of God and begging God to show up and begging God to fill this place. Bad church experiences are almost always related to old covenant remnant. Most bad churches' experiences are from someone prioritizing a view over you. I'm going to say that again. Most bad church experiences are from someone prioritizing a view over you. And you know what? Jesus never did that. And Jesus never asked us to do that either. Self-righteousness and legalism usually stem from an approach to holiness imported from the Old Testament. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. The justifications that Christian have used, Christians have used since the 4th century to mistreat people, and listen, find their roots in Old Covenant practices and rituals. Have you ever seen that? People leverage and they use the Bible and, and that's their excuse for how they treat people the way they treat people, like dirt. And, it's, and they use the Bible and it's rooted in old covenant rituals and practices. Try using the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Find something in the Sermon on the Mount. See if you can leverage that to start some kind of riot or rally against people. Try to use a part of the Sermon on the Mount to start a uh, crazy group that'll just march around and protest. It's really hard to do. But if you're looking into the old covenant, there's plenty to work with. But I want to be clear about this. There's not plenty to work with because God's covenant with Israel is flawed. It's just the opposite. When understood in its ancient context, God's covenant with Israel was brilliant. The civil law, the religious law, detailing God's agreement with Israel was far more superior in every way to the civil and religious law of its surrounding nations. 
The Torah may strike us as unsophisticated and, and even at times barbaric. But the protections afforded to the most vulnerable in Israel were nothing short of revolutionary in their original context. Women and servants and foreigners and even children all fared way, way better under the Jewish law than did their counterparts in surrounding nations. The challenges we face to our propensity to mix and match covenants are a result are not the result of the Mosaic Covenant being flawed, but our challenges stem from our unwillingness to accept two undeniable historical realities. Okay, so the issue is not in a flawed system back then. The issue is now us accepting these realities. And first of all, the first one is this. God's covenant with ancient Israel was with ancient Israel. That's just it. God's covenant with ancient Israel was with ancient Israel. It was not with modern America. It was not with modern Americans. The second one, God's covenant with Israel was temporary. It was important. It was strategic. It was divinely ordained. But it was temporary. In fact, it was 20 years after the resurrection before Jewish leaders in the church finally figured this out, that it was temporary. It took them 20 years to finally publicly acknowledge that Gentiles were not obligated to follow the law of Moses. And, and, of course, it makes sense because they were not Jews. But, man, it sure was hard to convince the Jews at the time that these Gentiles could be saved by this same God. It was crazy. The old covenant was more than just a religious framework for the Jews. It had been their way of life since childhood, their entire life and their parents' entire life, and their grandparents' entire life. But thanks to the clarity of Paul, the experiences of the Apostle Peter, the leadership of James, the church eventually saw the light. The early church leaders understood something, honestly, that I think maybe we've forgotten, or maybe we never even had in the first place. Namely, that while Jesus was merely foreshadowing the Old Testament, he did not come to extend it. Okay? And sometimes we miss that. Jesus didn't come to extend the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it, put a bow on it, and then to establish something new. Now, nobody's left yet that I've known. <clears throat> I've got the doors are barricaded from the outside, so. But I want you to hang here, hang with me here, and I want you to listen. Now, the phrases Old Testament and New Testament are, are really common church vernacular, okay? We use the, every time I say that word vernacular, did y'all watch that Three Stooges episode where he's like, drop the derby. Derby, that's a vernacular. Y'all ever see that one? And the judge is sitting there with Curly, and he's like, drop the vernacular, and drop the derby. And he goes, derby, that's not a derby, that's a vernacular. Never mind. Y'all got to go home and Google that episode. That's a great episode of Three Stooges. That wasn't in my notes, but I feel it was divinely ordained. 
Boy, every time that vernacular word. Anyway, but many readers have no idea where this term Old and New Testament came from. Most Christians are unaware of how the old got so old and something that was written over 2,000 plus years ago is referred to as new. Have you ever thought about Many people assume the Old Testament is labeled old because the events in the first half of our Bible are older than the events that happened in the second half of our Bible. That's assuming that people even stop to think about it at all. But that's not the reason. Now, it's important to point out that Jewish people thought of their, never ever thought of their scriptures as old anything. Just like you don't call your Bible the old Bible. You just call it the Bible. And the Jewish scriptures, which, which the Jews referred to as the law and the prophets, was actually Jesus' Bible. Okay? So uh, what we would call old, it was actually Jesus' Bible. And, and the word, the term Bible, was never even applied to anyone's scripture until 200 plus years after Jesus' farewell address. So, in the first part of the first century, there was no Old Testament and there was no New Testament. There was just Jewish Scripture. There was just the law and the prophets. And then all of a sudden, people started running around proclaiming that some guy had been raised from the dead. So think about that. No Old Testament, no New Testament, just the law and the prophets. And then all of a sudden, somebody starts, man, I'm, I'm fixing to get teared up thinking about this. Somebody starts think, saying, somebody's been raised from the dead. Somebody's been, that teacher, that, that rabbi, that teacher from Nazareth, he's been raised from the dead. That is the beginning of the end of just the law, and the prophets, because something brand new was about to take place. Whew, man, coming, coming in this season where we're getting ready for Easter, that should excite you. That should excite you that the law and the prophets, had, had, all there had been was that. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts showing up on the scene. Now, the term testament comes from the Latin term that means covenant. So the terms testament and covenant really are interchangeable. So instead of testaments, the two sections of our English Bible could have been called the old and new covenants. There's a lot of times I think about that and I think, man, that might have saved some people some confusion right there. There are a couple things that you need to know about the old covenant, the covenant that was between God and, and Israel, the one that was established on Mount Sinai with Moses. And I'm going to show you some things about that covenant right now. First of all, covenants have always had terms and condition. Much like contracts today, there are terms and conditions. And of this covenant, there were actually, the terms and conditions were actually etched in stone. Anybody remember anything about that? Those terms and conditions? Yeah, we remember those. They were etched in stone. This was a classic bilateral suzendry treaty, a covenant between two non-equals. 
between God and a nation. It was a conditional covenant. As long as the nation kept God's commands, God was obligated to keep the nation safe. But if the nation abandoned God for other gods, then he was under no obligation to uphold his end of the deal. The other important facet of this covenant, the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai, was that the covenant was actually between God and a nation, not God and individuals of that nation. So when God when God punished the nation, everyone in the nation suffered. And when God blessed the nation, everyone prospered, not just the not-so-wicked. Everyone prospered. God judged the health and the devotion of the nation by the behavior of not just all the people of the nation, but by the leaders and the judges and the prophets. The point being that God's conditional promises to Israel were to the nation of Israel, not to individuals in that nation, and they were certainly not to you. That's a really good place for an amen. I know it didn't sound like I didn't set it up right, but I'm telling you, God's covenant was with ancient Israel. It was with the nation of Israel, not to individuals, and definitely not to you. You were not, are not, and should be glad that you're not included in that covenant. Say amen. Come on, be glad that we're not included in that covenant because, man, we would have been messed up. Now, the way that we present our Bible to children and the way that we talk about the Bible leaves the impression that it's an allscape. It's all God's word for all God's people for all times. And hopefully, as you've read through the Bible and you've understood, maybe growing up in church, that you know a little bit better than that. But, and most non-Christians don't know that. Much confusion and some really bad theology stems from our tendency to cherry-pick, edit, and apply portions of God's covenant with Israel or text referring to God's covenant with Israel to us. If you, if you, if you listen to a lot of sermons and podcasts and stuff, and, and I do, I love them. Man, I, I, I'm so inspired by so many people. You can see... You can see remnant of old covenant theology and rules getting kind of edited, maybe amended a little bit, and then stuffed right here in this Jesus movement, and it's mixing and matching and that blending. I mean, if you walk into any Christian bookstore right around graduation time, you're going to see cards and books and gifts, and they're going to be engraved with this verse that we probably all know, and it's from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 11. A lot of you could quote this verse, and it says this. This is God speaking through Jeremiah, and he says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Wow! Isn't that encouraging? That's so encouraging. A God-fearing graduate could walk off of the stage at graduation and walk boldly into the next chapter of their life 
resting assured of prosperity and divine protection and hopefully a job? Maybe. Maybe not. Who is the you in that verse? It says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. The answer to that question, don't leave, shut the door. The answer to that question is not you, that's who, and certainly not the graduates. I've used this verse, and I know that this verse is exciting and it's powerful. I know the plans I have for you, and plans to give you hope and a future and to prosper you and never to harm you. And we go, man, thank you, God. But listen to the verse in its context. Jeremiah 29, 10, which we don't hear quoted a whole lot, say amen. It says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plan to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and Come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. If this verse is actually applicable to our graduates at graduation time, then we need to remind them that they have to wait 70 years before the blessing of God and the prosperity actually begins to take place. So we can tell them, if you can just hang on to 88, if you can make it to 88 years, then you're going to be blessed and you're going to be prospered. But that verse is not actually applicable to you or your graduates. And I know that messes up so many of our greeting cards and cards and all that. But the, the graduates and you, you're actually covered under a different covenant. A far better. Somebody say better. Come on, a far better, a far more superior covenant with even better promises, and it's called a new covenant. It's a new covenant. See that? I, ha I know the plans I have for you. That sounds good, but the plans that he has for you today and for me today are even way better than that. Way better than that. The Bible is all God's word to somebody but it's not all God's word to everybody. In my notes, I put here a pin drop. Listen, I know that I know that me saying these kinds of things, some of you are going, wow, whoa, 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 this is crazy. But you need to thank God that you made it through adolescence. And you made it through adolescence, and we didn't give equal status to the old covenant that we have given to the new covenant. Because had we given equal status today, if we live today uh, having given equal status to the old covenant and followed the old covenant, you would not have made it through adolescence. I mean, some of you really good ones might have, but I know, I know most of you. So you probably wouldn't have made it through. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? We live under a way better. But here's the real kicker. The new covenant that Jesus announced at Passover wasn't only 
knew it was a completely different kind of covenant than the one that he established with Moses on Mount Sinai. Okay, the covenant that Jesus was inaugurating was more akin to the covenant that he established with Abraham. Y'all remember when he made that promise to Abraham? We just talked about it, that through you I will bless the entire world. That's kind of the covenant that God is, is made, that Jesus came to establish with us. And that covenant in the old time, it's often referred to as a promissory covenant, okay? So unlike the bilateral Susan Tree Treaty, that we referred to earlier, the promissory covenant is unconditional. Everybody say unconditional. In a promissory covenant, one party, woo, come on, one party made a pledge to another party, and that one party took full responsibility for fulfilling that promise that was made. Man, that's a better covenant. That's exactly why it's a better covenant. Now, this is really interesting because the root of the Hebrew term covenant means to cut, okay? So like we cut deals in this day and age, you know, we cut deals. They cut covenants. And when I say they cut covenants, they actually cut animals into two pieces. And, and when they would cut these animals into two pieces, a representative from each party represented in this covenant, they had to walk through between the bloody obliterated carcasses that's how they made these covenants they would take a big cow they would cut it directly in half split it up and it's just bleeding and on the floor and somebody from your party somebody from my party walks through it and the message was this may it be unto me as it is unto this unfortunate animal if i violate the terms of that agreement that's a pretty serious covenant, okay? When God ratified his covenant with Abraham, he had, coven he had Abraham do this. He said, I want you to take a cow, and I want you to cut it in half, split it. I want you to take a goat, I want you to cut it half, and I want you to split it. He said, I want you to take a ram, and I want you to cut it in half, and I want you to split it. But he didn't require Abraham to walk through it. All of a sudden, the Bible says, a flaming torch appeared. And this flaming torch represented the presence of God. And the flaming torch went through those three animals that had been split in two. And it was God's way of saying to Abraham, hey, this one's on me. It's not on you. This one's on me, and it's for you. He didn't require Abraham to walk through. God did it. It was a promissory covenant. I take full responsibility for fulfilling, for fulfilling my covenant promises. Unilateral, unconditional. Now, this stuff gets me fired up. I've been fired up for weeks and weeks and weeks about this. Y'all just got to bear with me. But now with all of this that I've set up as the backdrop, I want us to revisit Jesus' reference to the new covenant at the final Passover. On that very night, he would surrender his own body to be flayed to the bone by a cat of nine tails. Then he will be forced to carry a wooden beam weighing upwards of 100 pounds. 
Then his hands and his feet would literally be torn into two by his own body weight as he hung and he bled and he died on a Roman cross. Now, do you remember his words in Luke chapter 22? He says, this cup is the new, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This was his way of announcing that the new covenant would be like the covenant that God established with Abraham. Unilateral, unconditional. It was God's way of saying, it was Jesus' way of saying, hey, this one is on me. This one is on me for you to the entire world. So this is what confuses me. And and in the last couple of years, this has set me free, but it's confused me with people in church. I don't understand why in the world we would want to borrow, reach back and borrow from an old covenant beyond on that side of the cross. It doesn't make sense to me. Why in the world would we want to reach back beyond the cross to an old covenant when, when Jesus did what he did on Calvary? As we discover later, our tradition of mixing and matching and equating, that's a key word there, equating the two covenants that inform the two primary sections of our Bible has created an Achilles heel for the post-Reformation sola scripture version of faith. Pastor Kevin was talking about that, and I think he mentioned the five solas last week. For now... It's enough to affirm what I'll reaffirm as we continue this journey together, that Jesus came to launch something new. Okay? That's the point. That's the whole point of this this whole entire series is we're trying to establish and get it to you that Jesus' purpose for coming to planet Earth was to unleash something new. And as long as we blend the old with the new, we will miss the beauty and the power of what Jesus gave his life to unleash for the world. Now, if all of this is new to you and you're wondering if maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into Jesus' words, that's understandable. But Jesus hinted at this epic shift in ministry a number of times, all throughout his ministry, you can see him echo this and preach this. Keep in mind, Jesus was the hinge between the old covenant and the new covenant. Jesus played by an old set of rules while laying the groundwork for the new that was to come. Jesus obeyed all the laws while setting up and establishing the new that was about to come. He showed respect and reverence to the old, but it was uncomfortably clear that something new was on the horizon. Jesus affirmed the goodness and the divine origins of Jewish scripture. He also made claims that elevated himself above those very scriptures. One example of this foreshadowing is found in Jesus' most famous sermon. Somebody decided to entitle it sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. But over the course of three-year ministry, Jesus probably repeated this sermon hundreds of times to his disciples and to people. It was, just, it was in his heart, it was in his spirit, and it's just what, what was coming out. Now, on Matthew's account, Matthew's writing this, 
after getting everybody's attention on exactly what it took to be happy, Jesus took a few minutes to put a new spin on several commandments and traditions that his audience had been taught their entire life. Here's an example. Matthew 5, 38, he says, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And yes, they heard that. I mean, probably as Jesus said it, they were like, yeah, amen. Come on. They were probably shouting him down. The Jewish scripture actually said, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's what the Jewish scripture said. But instead of explaining what that bit of scripture meant, Jesus surprised everybody in the entire audience when he says, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then he says, but. You don't but Moses. Moses wrote this. Moses, Moses was the man. You don't but Moses unless you're saying, but of course, I, you know. You don't but Moses, but that's exactly what he did. He butted Moses. Why? Because Jesus was greater than Moses. They didn't know this yet. Why did he but Moses? Jesus was greater than Moses. He was greater than the temple. He was greater than the Sabbath. He was greater than the law. And he butted his way right through this. And he said this. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt off and give them your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, we, preaching this today, I just can't figure out how to really do justice to it. I was trying to think of a couple of shock and awe type things that I could say to you, but I really didn't want to mess you up today and scare you and think I was crazy like you don't already, but. But we can't imagine how ridiculous, ridiculous, really, really, really ridiculous this sounded to first century Jews who were struggling to survive under the powerful sandals of Rome. But more to the point of our discussion, we can't begin to imagine how unscriptural this sounded to first century Jews whose entire scripture was built on an ethic to the contrary of what he just said. Their whole life, they've been taught, take no pity. Life for life, hand for hand, foot for foot, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No pity, no mercy. That's what they've been taught their entire life. It was law. It was the law and the prophets. It was what we would say, the Bible, you know. I mean, how many times have you said something and you're like, no, seriously, Bible. Man, Bible. Because Bi- that, Right? But all of a sudden, Jesus says, but I'm telling you, that's wrong. I'm sending you in the opposite direction of what that just said. I mean, if you're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, you know that Israel never turned the other cheek. They loved war. They loved to fight. Joshua, who was kind of a Messiah figure for first century Jews, he was a warrior. Right? We know David was a warrior. David had so much blood on his hands. Remember we talked about this last week? God wouldn't even let David build the temple because he had so much blood on his hands. So they weren't good at 
turning the other cheek. Jesus' teachings, though, stood in stark contrast to their entire ministry. Many in his audience, they wanted more blood. They wanted Roman blood. But that wasn't the only but. It gets even worse. Listen to this one. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, if you go back and you study the law and the prophets, you won't find a scripture that specifically, explicitly states, hate your enemy. But it was the sentiment, and it was definitely modeled and illustrated throughout Israel's history as documented in their scriptures. Ancient Israel did not love their enemies. They took every opportunity to defeat and destroy their enemies, and oftentimes with God's blessing and God's intervention because that was a part of his covenant that he had established with them. Again, this backdrop, this against the backdrop of their messianic aspirations, Jesus, when they look at him, he was actually a poor excuse for their Messiah. Their Messiah had to be a warrior. He had to be a fighter, right? Instead of fulfilling their messianic expectations, he was actually kind of dissing them. One more for you. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Whoa, 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 whoa. So everything he said up to this point says, you've heard it said this way, but I'm, I'm taking it opposite direction. So is he actually going to tell us it's okay to commit it, that somebody had to be thinking it? Because he said, you've heard it said, you're not to commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his own heart. So not only does he not go in the opposite direction, he goes in the same direction with what the law was stating. He just raises the bar. He just raises the standard a little bit. Jesus takes them to a very new place. Now, as they listened in stunned silence, you know that people in his audience had to start going, now who does this man think he is? Who does this guy think he is that he's going to come in here and he's going to start to twist and amend and change and, and mix around what we have studied and believed, what Moses what Moses established for us to follow. This guy's going to come in and mix it all around and change it all up. Who does he think he is? Fortunately, Jesus anticipated that question, and earlier in the same message, he gave them a heads up about his intentions. Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Oh, man. If we only understood what he was trying to say right there. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Now, remember, the law and the prophets, this is how the Jews referred to their Bible. This was their scripture. This was Jesus' Bible at the time. So what did it mean when he says, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill? The answer to that question has very significant implications on how we read and understand the Old Testament. The Greek term translated to fulfill 
means to bring to a designated end. Ha, man, thank God. I mean, we say that. We say that here, thank God, but, but we still pull that into our... See, Jesus came. What Jesus did was he didn't come to abolish and destroy the validity or undermine the credibility of the Jewish scriptures. Jesus came to bring those scriptures, to bring that law to a designated end, to a point where it was done, okay? So in other words, if this was a homework assignment, Jesus completed it. If he's given a speech, he concluded. If he's flying a plane, he's landing that baby, okay? He didn't come to abolish, to just get rid of it. He came to fulfill it, complete it, and bring it to a designated end. This is why, this is his way of saying God's conditional, temporary covenant with Israel was coming to an end. Listen, the intended from the beginning end. When God established his covenant with Israel, he set a timer, and according to Jesus, the time had run out. But the law wasn't just ending. The law was being fulfilled through him. Mario, if you'll just come back with me. For the next 40 years, religious Israel would wrestle with the internal tensions created by this Jesus movement, which was called the way back then. The harder they tried to shut it down, the faster it grew. Thanks to the tireless efforts of the Apostle Paul and the other Jews throughout, the Roman world began to finally start abandoning their strict rules in their local synagogues, and they started following the resurrected teacher from Nazareth. Then something extraordinary happened on August the 6th, 70 A.D. The transition came to an abrupt end. It was on this day that the four-year conflict between Jewish rebels and Rome came to a bloody and violent conclusion. Everybody say conclusion, because we're going to need that word in the next few weeks. When I say conclusion, I mean it's finished, done. The Jewish temple was looted, burned, and razed. The destruction of the temple signaled the end of ancient Judaism. Judaism, as prescribed by Moses at Mount Sinai, ceased to exist 70 A.D., August the 6th, 70 A.D. When Jesus announced the inauguration of the new covenant, it marked the beginning of the end of the old covenant. While his short ministry served as a transition between the two, it was clear that he did not intend for his followers to blend the two. Jesus left no room, zero, zilts, nada, no room for a blended covenant model. Not only had he explained this several times before his death, but he also said it in his final farewell address. Now you've probably read it and you've heard it dozens and dozens of times, but as I read it this time, I want you to listen and count the number of references he makes to Moses or to the law or even to the old covenant. 
We call this today the Great Commission. Jesus, he says this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Or go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything that I, I, I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now think about this. Jesus claimed that he was all the ultimate authority. If someone has all authority, they are the only authority to which one needs to appeal. And if it's really all about Jesus, if Jesus really is the center of it all, when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, not Moses, not Joshua, not Abraham, not anybody, not Jeremiah, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. No, all authority has been given to me. Teach people to obey what I have commanded. I've been teaching. I've been training you to prepare you for this. He was saying the old days of Moses, they're gone. I know Moses was your guy, but those days are over, and there's something new on the horizon. I am the new on the horizon. I'm the new. I am the new on the horizon. I'm the new. I am the new guy. It's not Moses anymore. Think about it. It's been nearly 2,000 years since the new covenant Jesus unleashed for the world was announced. But sadly, churches still struggle with letting go of the old to fully embrace the new. And failing to do so, we fail to embrace the terms and conditions associated with Jesus' new covenant. See, Jesus' new covenant has terms and conditions. Our failure to do so may be the primary reason that the church has become so resistible to so many people. I'm going to make this statement. I want you to hear me. We aren't children of God, or we aren't Christians because of a book. We are children of God because of an event that inspired a book. See, there was an event that inspired this book to be written. And man, the Old Testament is powerfully, is beautifully and so perfectly divine in its history and setting up and pointing everything to the New Testament, which Jesus was unveiled. Wow. We're not Christians because of a book. We're Christians because we're children of God because of an event that was so powerful, it inspired the number one selling book of all time. Still today, every year, the most sold book the Bible that must have been one powerful event but sometimes we forget the event and we make it all about this book 
whoa, Pastor Jared, you're, you're messing with the Bible. I'm telling you, I love my Bible, and I believe in God's Word. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes we forget, and we take these blended theologies, and we mix them and match them, and then the story of the cross isn't quite as powerful. Stand with me. You know, I have, I have, um, what's the words I'm looking for? For a few months, we have been excited to begin this journey because some of these were things that we wanted, that I've been wanting to share with you. And knowing that I was going to share wanted, that I've been wanting to share with you. And knowing that I was going to share this, I got a little bit nervous because growing up in church myself, Having grown up in a pastor's home myself, my whole life, you start talking about the Bible. You start messing with the Bible. It messes with me. And so I'm not messing with the Bible to mess with you. I'm trying to put a clear understanding of what the Bible is, what it was designed and meant to be for your life. And it is still today a powerful, powerful tool to be used. A powerful, powerful tool that can still help guide us and shape us and build us up. But we have to be careful of which part of that tool. If I'm standing at a fence, and this is just a a thought that came to my mind. If I'm standing at my fence and I put a nail up there and I flip the hammer around and I try to nail the claw side. Try to nail that hammer in with the claw side of my hammer. One, I'm going to hurt my fingers that's holding that nail. Two, I'm going to start the fingers that's holding that nail. Two, I'm going to start to destroy my fence. If I'm hitting it, come on, somebody. If I'm just beating my fence with the claw side of that hammer, it's all the same tool. It's just one side of it is meant for a completely different purpose than the other side. Come on, somebody. Do you get it? So we have to make sure that we're nailing with the right side of the hammer. Mm. Father, I pray right now, God, for this time together, this powerful, powerful time together, Jesus. God, I pray for fresh understanding. God, I pray for clarity right now. God, I pray that as as some of us even go back and re-listen to this message because there were some things maybe that we didn't catch or or that we wanted to hear again. I, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit just begins to reveal your nature. Jesus, the goal, the purpose today, the purpose every day, the purpose in this church is to every day, the purpose in this church is to bring back the new that you established for us when you came to this earth because in my world Jesus you're the center of it all you are the center of everything you are the center of my life you're the center of this church the center of my being God and I thank you for that Jesus I thank you for that, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. 
Everybody said amen. Amen. Now listen, I ended the message and I said that we have to learn to embrace the terms and conditions associated with Jesus' new covenant. So what are the terms, the single term and condition associated with Jesus' new covenant? And what exactly does it require of us? That's what we'll talk about next week. So I challenge you to be here next week. I challenge you to be a part of this, what God's doing. Uh, it's exciting to me. It's so exciting to me um, to grow with you and to grow in my relationship with God with you. I pray for you every week. I call out your names. I, I, I search for people on Facebook uh, so that I can know their, their name and their husband's name, their kids' names, and I write those down, and I pray for you. And uh, because I'm believing that God is taking you beyond belief this year. Amen? You receive that? Hey, listen, I want to close uh, with, with prayer um, this afternoon. And as I do that, I just want to remind you one more time uh, about our peace feast that's coming up at, uh, this weekend on Saturday. We really want you guys to be a part of it. Um, there's information on Facebook. If you, if you have my information, you can call me, contact me. Eddie, Pastor Eddie has put it all together. And man, we have a great team that's got everything set up. So we want you to be a part of that. And also, I want to remind you about our giving. If you want to be a part of giving uh, here at The Exchange, part of this church, and what we're doing in our, uh, you know, our finances go almost 100% to just support the ministry here at the church. And that's what we do. We, we want to build the kingdom and expand the kingdom. And there's a couple ways that we, we want to build the kingdom and expand the kingdom. And there's a couple ways that you can give. If you've never given before, you can text to give. You can go on our app. You can give online. Or you can drop a, a check or cash in the boxes that are mounted on the wall on your way out. And so it's that simple. Amen. We you bow your heads and let me pray and bless you guys on the way out. Father, we just, again, we just can't say thank you enough, Jesus. God.